Welcome to the Last Alliance University of Alberta Tolkien Society podcast. Join us this year as we venture into Beleriand with the great heroes of the Elder Days and do battle with the Dark Lord Morgoth. We hope you enjoy our discussion of the Silmarillion. bad decisions? Why did you have to make bad decisions? Why did you have to bring the Silmarils into it? That's one way to protect your daughter from, you know, <laughs> suitors. <It doesn't> <laughs> no, you, you could just say no. Just say no. It's not that hard. Okay, but like... Yeah. Yes. Yes would be another option. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a better option. Considering the, the doom that is placed on those two where it's like, you know, Melian acknowledges there's nothing you can do to stop this from happening. I mean, also, everybody talks about how Thingol never listens to Melian, but in this particular case, she doesn't say anything until it's too late, so she's not that helpful either. I mean, like, he could have consulted. I think there's some maternal rights somewhere in there. She is both of their child. Not just his. Like, if anyone is going, you know. But presumably she's also allowed to speak up and say things of her own accord without Thingol having to say, Hey, Melian, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, yes. But, but that ties back into the whole, you know, like, she speaks so few times that when she does speak, you need to listen. Just to kind of add weight to the th- few things that she does say. Well, it doesn't help whether or not you listen if she doesn't say anything until it's too late. Yeah. I mean, also, if you think about it, though, like... I mean, I have two thoughts. First of all, this seems to be a pretty common Maiar thing. Because if you think about, like... The Maiar, like, in general, have this, like, immense feeling of responsibility where they're like, we're not supposed to interfere too much. Like, we're supposed to let people, like, make their own decisions and play out their own fates kind of thing like maybe offer some guidance so I think there's kind of that too where it's like something momentous is happening and maybe Melian is like trying to sort out like honestly like if I were Melian I would be like trying to like have visions like crazy right now and be like how's this gonna go what should I do oh my god how is the future gonna happen right because it's almost like Thingol's like get me Silmaril in your life well here we go right (laughs) Suddenly everything becomes clear. Because <laughs> part of, like, knowing parts of the future is not being sure about whether you'll totally fuck things up if you do something, right? Yeah. Um, so I feel like there's that. Additionally, um, I feel like we could possibly make an argument that Melian might regret not speaking up more um, in contrast to Turin. Because in Turin, she starts speaking up more, right? And, like, actively telling people, like, oh, don't do that. It's a bad idea. So I'm, like, I'm wondering if maybe that's character development. Yeah. I don't know. Because mm-hmm. Turin has a problem of often speaking up too much and saying, you know, not shutting up at certain points. Mm-hmm. I feel like we could discuss this more when we discuss things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Go on the list. <coughs> so, Sarah, you're next. Uh, so besides my 
sudden inability to chill. Um, in, in an abrupt departure from his more rational decision making prior to this. Is it sudden though? Is he really definitely very prejudiced, but at the same time, like most of the other situations, it's been the situation where he looks at all of the things that's been presented to him, and he's like, I'm making this decision. It's a prejudiced decision, but I'm making it like an actual decision here. And this thing goes immediately from like not knowing about it to being very, very angry about it. It's not a decision, it's a reaction. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's that. Uh, Baron also doesn't have very much chill. Um, <laughs> and I love the Gorlin part. I, I just love the language of the entire chapter. Like, it's very much epic saga narrative language right now, and it's gorgeous. Particularly um, at the very beginning, um, the opening um, among the stories of. Yeah, anyway, it's pretty great. Um, and then the description of um, Baron when he's in, alone for four years, it's just epic and pulls up more God. Um, and then the description of Luthien um, is really gorgeous. As well. um, just the comparisons to nature and like these marbles that the Valar made, and then it's like nothing compared to Luthien because she's just so cool. Yeah, so just just the language. Question: Have you read the light? Also, like, I agree with you. I was going to say that I absolutely adore the first sentence. It's so gorgeous. Um, and also, like, this chapter of the Silmarillion is super, super interesting because it is told in, like, a distinctly different style than the rest of the book. Um, like you said, it sounds like oral formula, but, like, minus the repetition. Thank God. Um, <laughs> and, like, it sounds like you said, like a story that someone is speaking out loud, like it is written to be spoken out loud. And unlike different parts of the Silmarillion, there's an implication of an audience and of a narrative changing through time and of this like intertextuality that doesn't happen as much, as well as being written in like plainer, simpler language and different sentence structure than like the rest of the book. So it's like really cool and I like it a lot. Justin? Yeah, um. right. Yeah. Nice deflection. <laughs> I think one of my favorite parts of this chapter was uh, after Baron had uh, managed to finally slip away from Luthien, after, I think, trying three times to convince her to stay in safety, and she just says, look, this is what's going to happen. I am going to go with you, uh, and there's something you can do to stop 
that's you just get kind of used to it. That is very rad, and you can reuse it for the next two weeks because we're spending three weeks on this. Perfect. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, I really enjoyed the mystery of Nandangathev and the whole we don't talk about what happened there <laughs> aspect of it I think was more powerful by far than going through a description of Baron's trials would have been so I really appreciate that as for me I'm a little behind but uh, one thing I just remember from this piece even though we'd love to hate on Thingle for his reactionary position, I do love just this attempt at a loophole because you have Melian telling him it's like, you can't do the thing I can see on your face you really want to do right now because that's not going to work. And he comes up with just the most far-out near-guarantee to get what he wants. <laughs> but also, you know, remembering that this is completely uncharted waters within the story as a whole because so many of us are familiar with Arwen and Aragorn that, you know, sometimes it's easy to forget. This is, like, the first time this has even come up in Tolkien, mm. so it's really easy to be like, no, this is not going to be a thing. Just, no. <laughs> yeah, I'd have to say my least favorite part would be Thingol, just because of the dramatic kind of departure from every other time we see him up until this point. Gave me some bad flashbacks to how Luke Skywalker was portrayed in The Last Jedi, but I won't You mean amazingly? I won't get into it. I, I swear I won't get into it. We don't have time. But uh, my, fa- my, fa- my favorite part, actually, of this chapter was, was Sauron. I really love how they're setting him up to be kind of the personal nemesis of, like, Baron and Luthien, similar to how Glaurung is like, the personal nemesis to Kieran and Neonor. I just like whenever Sauron appears just as this, you know, like, their kind of villain with his armies of, like, werewolves and monsters and just you really this cool kind of dark sorcerer character. So I, really... I love that he's no longer a cat, I have to. <laughs> yes, but he's much it, cooler as a sorcerer than as a giant metal armor. Then yeah, just like a generic dark lord. It just like I really love his like because yeah, Morgoth is very much you know evil dark lord armored armies and such. But like Sauron adds kind of kind of an interesting aesthetic or, or feel to the story. Like you know, when this is sort of like the necromancer that we get to yeah. see in action. You almost wish he was depicted as the black staff wielding wizard as opposed to like this mace-clobbering figure. Yes. Yeah, because yeah, I feel like sort of dark magic was always his forte more than, like, combat. So that that was my favorite part. I don't know. I like the cat. <laughs> <laughs> well, cats are always fun, but... And, like, the Disney moment where Baron is, like, washing the dishes and then Luthien is in the other room. I mean, Tenuvial, sorry. And then she's, like... And then the cat is like, who are you? And she's like, I'm Tenubial. And then there's a clatter in the other room because Baron dropped the dishes. And then Tavildo was like, oh, that clumsy slave. I have also not the Silmarillion. Yes, it was. I have not read this in far too long. Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Before the first writing of Baron Luthien, though. Oh, okay, yeah, no. You are correct. I've not read the Lost Tales version of Barry and Luthien in a long That sounded fun. It's amazing. <laughs> I do remember Tavildo, though. I remember him being a thing. All right. So, let's start with the first sentence. Oh, my. Um, actually, the enti- entire first paragraph. Yeah. Among the tales of sorrow and of ruin that come down to us from the darkness of those days... 
There are yet some in which amid weeping there is joy, and under the shadow of death light that endures. And of these histories most fair still in the ears of the elves is the tale of Baron and Luthien. Of their, lay, of their lives was made the lay of Lathian, released from bondage, which is the longest save one of the songs concerning the world of old. But here the tale is told in fewer words and without song. Does anyone know which is the one song that's longer? I assume um, the Nolde Lothic. What, what do you mean the children of Hurin? Like, that one might be shorter, though. We don't yeah. know. Or, um, Arandil. I think it's probably children of her. Seeing these are more finished, we've got no idea of how long he intended them to be. Yes, this is Besides true. Besides very long. <laughs> <laughs> we get book versions in prose of both of them, and the children of Huron is longer than the Baron of Luthien one. In mm. prose. Yeah. yeah. So, so, yeah. But it's really hard to say. Yeah. All right. Well, any thoughts on, like, this first passage? The ideas therein? I just want to confess that right before I came here, um, I cornered some friends, and I read this to them twice. <laughs> you assaulted them with the opening paragraph? That is not assault. I have to listen to this, because it's just so gorgeous. I did that to my creative writing class, and one person was into it. And that, that was... No, it was Hannah. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, she was into it. So, two, yeah, two people, really. Two, yeah. I mean, like, you already knew it, so... That's why I sort of kept my mouth shut through the whole thing, but, yeah. Um... But yeah, so, so then, why do you like it so much? Do you want to elaborate on that, Ryan? Say more about that, Ryan. Because <laughs> it's, like, it's like a star in the night, right? Like he's emphasizing the contrast um, and how even if everything's just terrible, good is still good, beauty is still beauty. Um, the darkness and evil in the world doesn't destroy goodness. If anything, it makes it and it's just that concept is probably just as is more, even more beautiful than the writing style here. I, I love how it Tolkien treats this whole narrative here in Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit like <clears throat> he treats it like this is actual history things that happened long long ago and just reading this paragraph you just you feel like this is an act, actually a tale that happened it's like of all the tales of old like he's treating it like you know these are just stories that he discovered and he's sort of passing on to us. And I just love that kind of approach. It just, you feel like this is actual history you're reading. And it's just really wonderful. It echoes Sam, right? It's actually very, very similar to when you're encountering Sam as time goes on in Two Towers, especially Return of the King. Um, Sam is always the one who comes back to like the light and the darkness. Yeah. And that it reminds me of that. Specifically. They are. I like the cold, um, And the song he sings about the star. Yeah. yeah. Did you have something that? Did you have your hand up? Okay. <laughs> For me, it's kind of the acknowledgement that, on one hand, it's a beautiful story, kind of like what you were saying. But at the same time, it's still a tragic one. But that that's okay because we have so many of these great moments that just get such a response from us and they're beautiful moments but we can't help but realize they're sad because in the Silmarillion there are very few really just what we would call happy moments because they're all so bittersweet like we have the triumph of Fingolfin and it's such a great moment and so many of us love Fingolfin 
but there's the flip side to that at the same time. Yeah, I think like between you and Ryan, you're hitting on uh, what is to me a really important theme, especially in a book like The Silmarillion that spans so many characters and so many lives and so many years, which is that like idea of hope and despair and how easy it would be to have a really fatalistic attitude in this context, right? Like, um, oh, well, like, it doesn't matter. Like, everyone's going to die. Everyone in this book dies. Like, what's the point? Um, or even within the narrative, like, if you're an elf, right, um, in a way, it is kind of a triumph to actually value human life <laughs> when they live such short <clears throat> lifespans. Um, to have a glimmer of hope in so much darkness. That's the yeah. real triumph of all of this narrative, really. Mm-hmm. I've, heard, uh, yeah. I've heard that described as um, the worth of defeated valor before. I like the worth of defeated what? The, of defeated valor. Huh. Um, I thought it was a nice turn of phrase which runs through all of Tolkien. Yeah, like Galadriel talking about the long defeat, you know. Like the valor is still important, even mm-hmm. though, yeah. It's that's, also. Mm-hmm. I was going to say that's an Aragorn tool speech to Eowyn, right? still need to defend things even if no one's going to say about it. It's still important and it's not any less valorous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind yeah. of a break from traditional warrior culture where it doesn't, where your life doesn't matter as long as there's songs about you but if there's no songs then what's the point? Yeah. yeah. The whole like Achilles thing, you know, either you can be happy with a family and you'll be forgotten or you can go off to war and be remembered forever but you will die young and Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Really? This is what happens when you watch all your friends die young. <laughs> in one of the most destructive conflicts in human history. Mm. Um, yeah, the other thing I think that's brought up here is the fact that, like, this is Silmarillion age, right? Like, um, and we've seen a lot of how, like, evil is, like, the darkness is darker in this age, right? But the light is also brighter um, than anything that happens in later ages of the world. So, yeah. I mean, we've pretty much answered that, but the question I think Rick would have would be, so what does having this chapter in this place in the book do? What comes after that? Um, the fifth battle, where everything goes horribly wrong again. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Well. It's right, <laughs> so it's right after the Battle of Sudden Flame and Fingolfin's death, and right before the Near Nyeth Arnoediad. So just... it's, a breath, it's a breath of fresh air then. Yep. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be the um, boring, not reading into things one and say it's the only event of major importance that happens in between those two battles. That too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's possible. Yeah, if you look at it in the universe. And I think from Tolkien's perspective, um, the breath of fresh air isn't just because a breath of fresh air is nice, but then it allows you to appreciate how horrible the fifth battle is. Because <laughs> <laughs> if it was just the fourth battle and the fifth battle, you're just like, oh, it's just uh, a battle. Died, then but this way, it's like, oh. <laughs> and all of this is preparing for the new catastrophe. Right? But what if we want to appreciate how bad the fourth battle was? Well, we, I, I, I was going to say, appreciate sure. how bad the fourth battle was. It was pretty bad. The chapter is talking about how good things were before the fourth battle. Yeah, that's true. Well, uh, and just like a, from like a narrative perspective, it's just it would be less interesting if you just had you know like three chapters in a row of big epic sort of battles. You need kind of space to breathe in between to it's process serious. everything. It's just a series of things getting worse. You got to kind of. 
Yeah, you can't just like, you know, inure the reader with constant battles and flame and death and misery. You have to kind of intersperse it. Yeah, I was going to say, it, it doesn't just help brace you and appreciate the fifth battle, but I think it also it also highlights some of the themes of the Dagger Bragalot as well, just because it does give you that break, but it's like, you, you have aspects of that that were a triumph, and he lets you carry that emotionally through Baron, Baron and Luthien, to, and then kind of brings you back down again with the fifth battle, but it's that... It's that concept of change that goes through the Silmarillion because we have so much ebb and flow of different emotions. Whereas, like we've all kind of agreed, if you just have these, then it kind of just runs together and you lose kind of the importance of them individually. The other note is that plot-wise, this chapter sets the stage for Turin, Turin of Huron because we get Thingol and... The Nagathwan incident set up. It does introduce those places, doesn't it? Well, it, it introduces Nagathwan because we haven't really seen a whole lot happening there before. Yeah, and it gets Finrod out of Nagathwan, and, um, and it also kind of relates to like the whole idea of you know like what will win the day is not you know the strength of arms or armies or battles. It's it's usually individuals. You know, like most of the time it's you know sort of lesser quote unquote people like like Frodo who kind of they are crucial to kind of achieving victory and it's not you know we're not going to see you know the elves and the men band together and like you know like conquer Sauron and Morgoth and do all these things it's, but it's like through Baron and Luthien through the events that we see they kind of facilitate the ultimate hope for all of Middle Earth because these individuals came together oh god it is you kind know, of interesting that the two most important stories come after the two major destructive battles mm. they're not part of those stories yeah. You know a really good way to sum up that theme? What? Protect what you love, don't destroy what you hate. Okay, moving on! Um, <laughs> moving on. Anyway. I'd also like to say that, um, like, if you look at everything that happens after this, you have no return after this point to things being normal, ever. Right? Like, mm-hmm. in the last couple, before, before the fourth battle... You had a few situations in which, like, Tolkien very distantly described people having a relatively normal life. Um, and that doesn't happen after this, so, like, this is kind of your last shot at people doing semi-normal things in which life goes on, even if it is life goes on because people fall in love and then go steal a Silmaril. <laughs> <laughs> As they do. Right? After this, everything just collapses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. kind of going off of that, like, I, it's also, like, this is, uh, like, a zoom-in kind of thing because a lot of this like a lot of the Silmarillion is on like such a macro level that I really like how Baron and Luthien kind of go like gets a little bit hi hello um gets a little bit more into like the micro level and like this like you know Bear here and Baron and how they're actually like living in a broken Valerian Jesse and then we're gonna ask Sarah Lynn what she likes about this chapter so, so things actually going off what Sarah said, things happen very quickly after Baron and Luthien. So, like, I think a gener- like it's, it goes from hundreds of years to maybe a generation of time passing. Yeah. So things speed up quite a bit. I mean, it's always exciting when you hit the sudden approach to the climax of the story halfway through the book, but you know. Yeah. 
Sarah Lynn, what do you like about Baron Ruthian? I was saying that as if I actually read it this time. I mean, well, I what do you it. hate about Baron Ruthian? Or what do you want to talk about about the first seven pages of Baron Ruthian? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's up until like up until the end of the interaction between Fingal and Baron. <laughs> I wrote about this for eco-criticism because it's like I was reading this like eco-critical book about Tolkien and it was like citing this one critique of Tolkien that like hits on a lot of things that a lot of people say about Tolkien and it was basically saying that like he's way too wordy he's super super wordy he uses too many words too many descriptions too many things when it comes to and, nature like, yes but that's only because you think it's not important right well that's my personal bias so. but, like, Because, like, um, Tolkien is actually incredibly <coughs> concise. Like, their baron buried his father's bones and raised a cairn of boulders above him and swore upon it an oath of vengeance. Like, how much are you saying in that one sentence? Like, you were saying a lot of things in very few words. Like, Tolkien is not wordy at all. Which is why, like, if you dig deeper at this critique, it's not that Tolkien is wordy, it's that he spends too much time describing things that people think are unimportant, i.e. the natural world. But obviously Tolkien thinks that the natural world is very, very important, so, like, that's why he would describe it that much and spend a lot longer describing the landscape than he does three of Baron's actions. So anyway, I also like how history is tied in with the landscape here, because that makes it also feel very, like, you're reading an epic, right? Because you're, you're, like, if you're reading an epic, it'll be like, and then they went to the hill where people once chained Loki. This is not an actual example, don't listen to me. But... But it was a tree. Yes. <laughs> um, and so you kind of get that here with, like, here's this lake, and it was said that Melian had hallowed it, and it's, like, the history and the characters are tied into the landscape in this very, like, intimate manner. Um, I picked up on the um, quasi-religious language in this paragraph. Mm. Um, reverence, hallowed, um, and that surprising for me just because Tolkien, even when he's describing gods, he doesn't really use very religious language. Um, it's not usually part of his vocabulary, but here it is. It's very much a sacred space, this Arnelia. Um So what does that mean in Tolkien's mythos? Um, it's hallowed, what does that mean? It's anyway, and so for me, the fact that it mentions the stars is like clearly this is somehow connected with Barda. Um, this place reminds people of Barda, asks, gets them to pray to Barda, um, things like that. Um, rather, I, at least my impression was it's going straight to Barda rather than moving the time. That's actually a really excellent point, just because Barda throughout the entire. Um, Barda is 
always the one that everybody will turn to immediately, right? Like it's Bardo that everyone remembers, it's Bardo that like Frodo just knows about randomly. Um, Barda is arguably the most important Balagar, even though Manwe is like probably technically in charge. Like Barda is clearly the most important Balagar in the whole world. <laughs> I, <laughs> like, I, I was gonna say that one's arguable. Some people call on Homo. Everyone calls on Barda. Um, it's just it's a super interesting fact, actually. And you also, because it's a lake that reflects the stars, so it's like traces of both Ulmo and Varda, right, in this symbol. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I also really like the Varda point, because Varda is also like very much held up as this attack against Melkor, right? Like with her sickle and with people just saying her name and evil things are like, ah! Um, yeah, because you always hated him. Very technical terms on my front, anyway. Um, <laughs> wasn't Varda the only one whose work wasn't marred by Melkor at the same time? Oh, maybe. Because the stars were the single only thing, I think, that he never actually got his hands on. Mm-hmm. He messed around with the Earth, but never got up to the stars. That is... That, and I think that, that's part of why the, the memory and the purity of Varda, because she's the only one that... Well, Symbolically, because he was also never able to kind of claim the sun for himself, so he's never had much success in trying to, you know, well, assault, the sun, assault the heavens. As it the, were. the sun and the moon are kind of their own. They're well, yeah. separately, right? Well, Malcolm's like, what is the one Malcolm moves the Barda the one who hallowed the Silmarils after they were constructed? Yes. yes. Yeah, so that, that's also part of it too, because like, you know, as we know, like they, they burn Melkor with like their very touch, so it's yeah, yeah. she's kind of like the antithesis to him almost. Yeah, I was going to say, because like, Umo, Manwe, and Aule are more like peers to Melkor, whereas like, Tolkis and Barda he fears. And Tolkis we kind of know why, but... <laughs> yeah, because he repeatedly beats up Melkor. <laughs> <laughs> He's the only one. Apparently, and, and, yeah, and he would like a body ball. slam him into the ground. Kind of. Um, yeah, I guess next point would be thoughts on Gorlam and Eilinol. Poor Gorlam. What's your thoughts? Yes. <laughs> okay. What's your I thoughts? actually love this passage, guys. Um, it's really tragic, and I love it. Um, I like that. he's not like a bad dude right because lots of the time what you get when you have this really so Baron here is very noble he's very um, steadfast very important he's going to resist Melkor for like ever until he dies it's going to be great Um, (laughs) so he's like super steadfast and usually what you have there is that one slimy guy yeah, that one slimy guy, right? And and he's and he resents the fact that everyone just automatically respects this really noble strong dude, Barahir. Um, but Gorlum's not like that. Gorlum doesn't resent Barahir. He's not angry about it. Um, it's in Tolkien, you can clearly see that like evil is always tied to power, um, right? Right down to like Wormtongue. It's about the, the ability to have power over someone else. 
but Gorlum, you can tell Gorlum's not actually a bad guy because Gorlum at no point is seeking his own power. He just really would like to be with his wife, who's dead. He's like the anti-Miglin. And it's really, I love him. Um, anyhow, it's, it's really tragic and I like it a lot. Hi. And also then he gets to also have some of the most interesting Tolkien imagery mm-hmm. later on because he dies. Also, I also love that part um, in its characteristic villainy where Sauron's just like, I will reunite you with, with your wife because I keep my promises and it kills him. Yeah. Um. Technically, he did. Say true to his word. It technically, uh, is the what means a lot regarding villains. Yeah, that's, that's the that's the typically villainous part of it. But then he gets to come back, and he's like this weird ghost, and there's a bunch of crows, and it's this really weird, ominous like omen language, right? And like ghost language, it makes you think of Shakespeare, but it's not very typically Tolkien. It's very Norse. <laughs> I'm just gonna throw that out there. Uh, I'm just gonna throw out there that like the uh, the birds and the alder trees and the like ghost coming to warn you of a betrayal are all super 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 Norse. Yeah, the um, alder trees and the crows. And like happen in a lot of sagas. Um, and also like Baron having a dream ahead of time, right? Is very like. Like, all of these are things that are, like, signs of fate in Norse sagas and, like, fate coming to get you type of thing. Um, in addition, uh, in the actual, like, in the Lay of Lathian, uh, fun facts, the crows actually talk. Because in here it's just, like, and they croaked in mockery. In the uh, Lay of Lathian, they have actual dialogue, and they're like, Ha, Baron, you're an idiot. Uh, but, like, in pretty <laughs> language. Um, Baron comes too late. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's Too late it. they croaked? Yeah. yeah, that. Okay, thanks. I so forgot close. the quote. <laughs> um, which is also, like, a super Norse thing. Like, talking birds telling you fate stuff. Specifically right. crows? Yes, because there's Hugh and Also other birds, though. Hugh and For me, the real clinch um, of this passage is when Gorlin... Um, actually does um, give away the location to Sauron. Um, it really struck me because like, if this is such a weird moral situation for him, clearly like, my moral compass was like it wasn't working. Because um, <laughs> it was like, but he wants to be with his wife, that's so amazing. But it's his friends and Sauron is Sauron. It was, anyway, it was messy. Um, but I was kind of like, no, no, he should definitely should not give it away even if his wife is alive. And then, at the end, I think he would agree with me because he's like, now Gorlin would have drawn back, but daunted by the eyes of Sauron. So in the end, it's actually not his wife that gets him to say it. It's the fact that he's in front of Sauron mm-hmm. and he's terrified. And that really struck me. I'm like, and, and I think that's really what separates Gorlin from the heroes of the Silmarillion because um, the heroes be able to stand in front of Mordor in front of Sauron and actually hold their ground and not be daunted, not be held in fear. Um, even though they should be terrified, um, <laughs> they're not conquered by that fear. They can work through that fear. Um, yeah. I actually have to partly disagree with you on that one in that um, I don't 
So, like, in the context of Greater Tolkien, I do not believe that what's going on is that Gorlam is simply afraid. Um, in this case, daunted by the eyes of Sauron, like, Tolkien has a thing with the eyes of evil things, just like he has a thing with the eyes of good things, people. Uh, so, like, um, for me, this evokes, like, the sight of Morgoth's face kind of, like, overrides your conscious mind and your ability to choose and also the um looking in the eyes of Glaurung right like if you look in the eyes of Glaurung he has complete power over your mind he can wipe it entirely like he does with Neonor or like he can you know just fixate you so that you can't move so I think in this case there's something more going on than fear makes him kind of give up like he gives into fear I would argue that he, in the end, he doesn't have a choice. That, yeah. like, Sauron's power is so much greater than his own that he can't look him in the eye and keep his own mind. In which case, what's differentiating him from the heroes, like Luthien, who is half Maya and half elf, <laughs> and can look Sauron in the eye as an equal, like, I would argue that it's a matter of that rather than a matter of, like, being afraid. So Good, Sauron, I sparked a debate. Sorry. So Sauron say? is basically <laughs> I guess. <laughs> no, Leader Snoke is Sauron. You gotta order off the table. Sauron was handled much better as a character than Snoke. Sarah Lynn, did you have your hand up, right? Yeah, uh, yes? Okay, yeah. Sarah Lynn and then Tristan. Yeah. And then Nick. And then Josh. No, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. All right. Sarah Lynn. <laughs> For my part, I would I would disagree with you to a point. I think that Gorlim seals his own fate a bit when he says, I'll make a deal with Sauron, mm -hmm. because he's already agreed to give up the information in return for what he asks for. And then he asks for it, and he's like, eh, I kind of want to rescind on my deal, and Sauron's like, no. Mm -hmm. But I at the same the time, um, well, actually, no, Sauron's the one who's keeping it. Strangely, <laughs> um, it's amazing how often that actually happens. Yes. But at the same time, I would say that it's not all about your background as to how strong you are as a person. Because yes, Luthien's half Maya and half elf, but at the same time, you get men who stare down Morgoth. Kieran being the example, um, <laughs> and that's a greater inner strength than Gorlam seems to show here. That's fair. Yeah, I would kind of... Sorry. Yeah, like, yeah, th that makes sense. But I would also, you know, agree that Sauron's kind of mere presence, I think, uh, always just plays a factor because he is a Maiar and such a powerful Maiar. Um, for example, just like in this chapter we see that, you know, he, like, he binds, like, spirits into wolves to make them werewolves. Like, he just has so... We know that he has like all this kind of dark magic at his disposal, so I feel like yeah, even just his aura just has this kind of like dread because like you know when, when like Baron is like wandering through the wilderness, like his power contends with that of Melian's. Like he's just on a on a sort of a plane of existence that is so far beyond kind of regular humans. So yeah, yeah, I would kind of disagree with you and Sophia. I agree more with Tristan on this one, just because like to use the metaphor. 
at that point, he's already opened the door, and now he's trying to push it shut again. So I think it's less that he's been bewitched, that he's kind of already yielded, and he's kind of just, he's already lost, to use that metaphor. And I just, as a brief aside, the more I think about this character, he kind of reminds me of Ned Stark. I won't lie, he reminds me of Ned Stark now. Just okay. to throw the Game of Thrones reference. No spoilers, because I'm actually watching season one now. Oh. I'm actually going to jump in on the um, Ryan and Dwight team here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> We're setting keys now. Oh my god. We're going to move sick. different sides of the. There's a, there's a partisan movement in the club? <laughs> <laughs> Be, because of how it's described, because it's described as that um, he, that Gorlam told Sauron things, I think that if it was Sauron bewitching him, it would be described differently, like Sauron pulling the information out of him. Right. This is more like he's volunteering it. I think I misspoke when I said that. Uh, <laughs> oh, you're betraying us now. <laughs> <laughs> when, I, when, when I said that, um, Gorlam gave it to fear. I think that was a bad way to put it. Um, because I was also wondering about the eyes and this bewitchment that Sauron has over people. Um, but in the end, that contrast between him and the other um, heroes of the similar league is still there, that they can stand up in the face of this bewitchment. See ya. However that works. Um, I think, yeah, I think that's kind of still the dividing line. I, like, I would agree that um, Gorlam's mistake is definitely that he agrees to the deal, and that is what dooms him. Um, I do stand by that, like, in the end, there is, like, a force of will involved. Oh, force of will, yes, but for me it's not force like he was bewitched. Right, yeah, no, I don't think he was bewitched this entire time, but... Jesse. <laughs> I was going to say, he was also tortured for a while. That's true. <laughs> yeah, like, it kind of skipped <laughs> over that part. Yeah. Now we like, shall reveal the location of the hidden rebel base. Yeah, he doesn't immediately, it's not like he immediately goes to Sauron and is like, hello, like, yeah, I love my wife back. Yeah, for a long the, time. This the line, like, and at last, worn with pain and yearning for his wife. Yes. Like, he is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's he broken down. Yeah. And honestly, at that point, it's kind of Barrier's fault for not moving his base. <laughs> <laughs> Someone also- hasn't reported back for a while. <laughs> <laughs> Another really excellent point. Yes. Yes, Orlok disappears <laughs> mysteriously, and he's and Barrier's like, I think we're safe here. <laughs> That's really true. And it's not like they have they have like eleven people. It would be easy to move. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so I also like um we yeah, okay, we kinda touched on the dream and on Gorlam. Um I love the details Tolkien chooses, right? On a time of autumn he came in the dusk of evening and drawing near he saw as he thought a light at the window. Like, everything is perfectly ordered, right? Like, autumn, evening, closeness, a light in the window. Like, it is all perfectly set up. It's so pretty. Um, we can see that as foreshadowing, too. <coughs> that's true. Um, actually, yeah, there's a lot of use of, like, seasons in this as well. And how that relates to like endings and beginnings, right? Gorlam sees Aelinol in the autumn, and that is a time of ending. And then Baron meets Luthien in the spring, which is a time of beginning. Um, yeah. Bye. See ya. Bye. Um, 
Other random comments that I'm going to throw out there is that in the revision history, uh, Sauron was first Tevildo Prince of Cats, which is exactly <laughs> what it sounds like. It's um, so perfect. Wonderful. So it's not. I love it. It's horrendous. <coughs> it's so bad. I think it's something that should have lasted into the last... Huon, Prince of Dogs, chases Tevildo Prince of Cats up a tree. <laughs> but it's really funny. Oh, that okay. sounds glorious. <laughs> It is really funny, but it's also really bad. At the same time, I was yes. going to say, I, yes. I'd like to go backwards and see if there's like some sort of grounds for like, we think it's like just painful and cliche, but I'm, I'm almost curious if there's like a precedent for that. Well, it's very animal fable. Yeah. Right? It's oh, yeah. very like before he'd read Norse mythology, so it's yeah. very like animal fable to it. But yeah. Yeah. What was Tibaldo always just a cat, or could he like change forms? No, he was just a, cat. a giant oh, cat. Okay, an enormous cat. Oh, okay. with really evil eyes. Um, I'm gonna take this one step further and make you guys imagine Inspector Gadget's villain for a minute. Oh, uh, just no. like the Dark Lord oh. with the cat on his lap. Um, <laughs> Next time, Baron. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, yeah, no, like. Going off of what you're saying, I also think he was working on like solidifying his aesthetic, right? Like what kind of aesthetic he wanted to go for. And I mean, if I had like millions of dollars in funding to do this for the rest of my life, I would study how like Tolkien's Legendarium transformed, like based on the different myths he was reading, because I'm pretty sure that um, his like when he like when he read Norse mythology and then Finnish mythology. That is what like cemented the aesthetic that he wanted for the Silmarillion because a lot of the transformations um, from like the tale of Tenuviel to here um, are transformations that like both thematically and also like level of darkness and also like in terms of specific tropes and are themes. and themes yeah like come from Finnish and Norse mythology, even though they're transformed, obviously, into Tolkien's own themes and his own worldview. Like, he definitely makes it his own, but I think that and was even, really important. Yeah, and even at, like, what point he would have wanted to make a mythology specifically for England itself, and at what point he started to shape his world as a myth in and of itself. Yeah. And it's like, and he writes in his introduction <coughs> that he wanted something that would suit the air and the land of England, and that would be crisp and cool, kind of like the Northern European mythology he was reading. So it's like you can see that. Yeah. All right. <laughs> cool. Anyone else want to say anything? Because I kind of just like hijacked the conversation. Um, to kind of like push a little bit past forward to Baron arriving. sentence that you brought up about Baron Marius's father's moments. Mm -hmm. um, it's just like, first of all, 
wow, this is an amazing sentence. And it's amazing in the lays too. Like, really stands out. Um, and also very kind of like, really interesting in that like, it's less obvious, I found, in this version than it is in the lays that um, Barrick's now pulling the so good and desperate that he can't die um, <laughs> situation, but yes. it's still kind of hilarious. But also you get um, you get a scene with Baron like attacking people who have his father's ring and stuff like that, and it's really great. Baron suddenly becomes uber talented and clearly living up to his father's legacy. He did not fear death, but only captivity. Where have we seen that before? You have unlocked the tragic backstory. <laughs> no, no, seriously, where have we seen that before? Did yeah. not fear death, but only captivity. Yes, correct. Mm. A plus. Um, <laughs> yeah, I do not fear death, just a cage, or whatever that line was. I'm misquoting it. Yes. Okay. I love the the ring of Barra here. Just the description. It's really, it's really cool. Just like just the like, but just but yeah. Um, just like rings in general, just I really find I like how sort of Tolkien just uses them. Like you know, obviously with the One Ring, it's like the MacGuffin, but like this one, it's like a personal kind of family heirloom. It's a character thing, and it's also becomes important to the history because it you know marks up like the kings of Gondor and such. And it's very important plot wise, and it's just a beautiful ring. When you look at it. I'm mostly curious why Finrod took that particular device for his house. Like, what does it signify to him? Yeah, that two, is the real question. Yeah, two snakes, one with the uh, eternity. Here's a question, though. What came first, the Aragorn ring or the Finrod house device? Because he, like, he could have made up that symbol to represent the kings of Gondor and Aragorn personally, and then gone back and edited the Silmarillion so that Finrod's ring had that specific description. Mm. Yeah, that's a good yeah. question. wonder what the significance of like the just the imagery is with the ring like you know how does that represent sort of the symbol of your house <coughs> do you got any theories well depending on different <laughs> mythoses there's serpents are associated with death often wisdom is another one actually that's a less known one it's right up there with uh, ravens ravens and serpents depending on the mythos kind of trade off yeah. Uh, there's Ouroboros comes to mind. And then there's a Yormander, the world serpent. Also life. life yeah, the cycle of life. Eternity. Eternity. Yeah. The cycle of life life and death. Pretty sure it's the circle, not the cycle. Oh uh, so my real question though is is that what is that what they're most closely associated with endorsement? Because Tolkien pulls from two things Norse mythology and Christianity. And in one of them, snakes are not so great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's what I'm wondering, yeah. Like snakes might have just been a, a convenient animal, animal to make a loop shape out of. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. 
But I mean, it's, it's not even it's not even like a snake eating itself. It's, it's snake two eating. snakes, two, yeah. one of which is eating the other's crown. Which is... Is that what's going on? I thought yeah, they... one of them is they, yeah, crowned with golden leaves, crown. which the other one is eating. Oh, cool. Oh. Yeah, that makes sense. It's so symbolic. One upholds the other devours, so it's like the flip sides of like... Like, oh, like, kind of like passing of the seasons, like life and death and the cyclical nature of reality. Or it could be more archetypal because you have the two versions of the king. You have the devouring tyrant and you have the wise king. Hello. You made it to a book study. I made it to a book study. section shortly but I should ask first does anyone have any like preliminary Sauron comments because we'll obviously get into this more later but like anyone's like specifically about this passage that you really want to say if you don't well yeah I just love how he's he's actually like a character here like I, I get I understand why Tolkien would want him to sort of like not appear at all in Lord of the Rings. He's very much kind of a force of nature. It's everything he represents. Um, that makes sense. Uh, and also he's sort of at the height of his power. Or like, he's, he's the Dark Lord then. Here it's just very interesting. He's he's not really, yes, he's more or less lieutenant, but he's one of several. He's not, you know, the ultimate evil in the world. He's one of the evils. And so he's kind of a, like more like a field commander. And it's just interesting to see him just out in the wilderness, you know, hunting for a specific thing as opposed to just trying to conquer the entire nation. Mm-hmm. It's just, he's given a mission and I just love his sort of particular dark wizard kind of flavor because he does have sort of sorcery about him. He has an army that includes werewolves and fell beasts and it's just just a contrast to the typical kind of overwhelming kind of power that like Morgoth brings with his, with his hammer and dragons and such. And I think part of it is that he's actually out doing something rather yes. than just sitting yeah. in a tower. That's, that's the most fascinating thing and, and, and seeing him doing stuff is really fascinating just because he he's not kind of direct in his approach. He's very, you know, his greatest strength has always been sort of sorcery and subterfuge and just kind of, you know, zigzagging around his opponent's minds and kind of messing with them that way. And it's, it's really interesting to see. Your first look at a character you thought you knew. Yeah. It actually also shows just how unimportant Sauron is. <laughs> like I say, it's... He's out here running errands trying to find these 12 guys. <laughs> like, that's, like they're, they're 12, 12 people, dudes. but like, yeah. they're still sending the guy that we know as the great Dark Lord Sauron and yeah. Conqueror this of is the like, Nations to he's the world. He's still... And he is hunting some outlaws in the backwoods. He's, well, he's in his early... Meanwhile, meanwhile, there are whole hosts of elven armies mentioning the new trilogy, he's a lot like Kylo Ren here because we're seeing him in sort of the beginning stages of his villainy. He's not, like, like we say, he's not at the end stages where he is the Dark Lord of the entire world. He's just 
starting out in his sort of tenure as as like a dark lieutenant and just interesting to see him just in, you know in, in his beginnings rather than seeing him as the all powerful you know force that we fear in Lord of the Rings and actually to touch on what uh, Jesse was saying about him being in, insignificant it does highlight if we look to like the Lord of the Rings just how far kind of elves of men have not necessarily fallen but just declined declined to such an extent because you know last chapter we had Fingon king of the Noldor taking on Morgoth and we're like oh here's Sauron he's a bit of a wimp and then you look at Lord of the Rings and you have Gilgalad king of the Noldor that kind of just gets this from Sauron yeah Fingolfin but yes oh Fingolfin you said Fingon yeah my bad which so many Finn names like I, I knew which one I was talking about. I promise. I'm not worried. I know you're going to I can never remember what happens to Fingon because it's just like, it's so undramatic. He just gets whacked. Yeah. yeah. Gets stepped to death in the battle of. Or does he get stepped to death or does he die fighting a bunch of Balrogs? Anyway, it's in the near death in It's It's like, it's just. Sort of yeah. tossed off. Yeah. And then, like, no, well, he he becomes like a sacred mound, mm. right? It's like the we only. Become sacred mounds. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But Fingolfin's the impressive one that everyone remembers. Yes. Yeah. No, Tolmorwen. Way cooler. Who? Tolmorwen, Morwen's island, as in the only bit of sea that does not fall. The only bit of the land, bit of land that does. Yeah. The, the, the yeah. Mother... No, you totally just took the bait on that, right? <laughs> what? You know you totally just took the bait on that, right? Nope. I didn't get it When someone says, this one's more memorable, and you say who? Oh. Yeah, but you could just have different priorities. Anyway, moving on. Yeah. Okay. I don't remember to more one, actually. Uh, Bryn, mm-hmm. do you want to throw out a thing that you like, didn't like, or generally want to talk about in Baron and Luffy? Just um, give her a chance to swallow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I timed that badly. You're like every waiter ever. <laughs> Sorry. Um, uh, I really like, love this chapter a lot. Um, um, and one thing, I like how uh, a lot, like Baron's journey through uh, the, like, I forget the actual name, the Undying Lands, is it? Or Nandumberthal? Yeah, yeah. Um, it isn't really described. It's just said this was too terrible to even imagine, which of course makes you immediately start imagining it in detail and like trying to figure out exactly what you want to. I thought that was an uh, effective description choice. Yes, perfect. Greetings. Hi, Robert. Oh. Um. Perfect. Okay, you segued us onward perfectly. Um. I 100% agree, and I love that, yeah, like you said, I love that you don't get a very good description of Nandungartheb, well, you get a really good description of it, I like that you don't get a really specific one, um, and just this idea of, like, the fringes of Melian's power mixing with the fringes of Sauron's power, and how, like, I don't know, it's terrifying is really cool. And it's really cool. Well, here's what's super fascinating about that to me. Because Melian is like not a force of evil, mm-hmm. right? Um, so it's interesting that you're when you're considering Doriath's borders in general, like Doriath's borders aren't 
your nice, harmless kind of keeping the kingdom safe by like constantly misdirecting people so you always get lost, or like, you know, all those, or fog, or all those nice things that one could do to protect their kingdom. They're like horrible monsters. She created the Girdle of Melian, and it's awful. <laughs> well, I don't think that's the entire Girdle. Like, yeah. it's just where the but Girdle is mixing with like yeah. evil, right? But it's true that, like, Melian deals in, like, confusion, right? Yeah. And so, like, confusion and misdirection and fuzzying the mind so that you can't get into Doriath. So, like, of course, when that mixes with Sauron's sorcery, like, like they said, madness walks, right? It's yeah. perilous it's, mixing with perilous. What makes, it, mm-hmm. what makes it interesting is that, um, like, hypothetically, you could have you could have had, like, Melian's ultimately good girl needing Sauron's power and like not making it more more dangerous or like making it almost like safer. That's true. Right? Yeah. Uh, but instead it makes it infinitely more treacherous and like the worst place ever and that is partially because Melian is there. Yeah, it makes it super perilous because Mer- Melian right? is perilous. Which is like tied back into some of Tolkien's more complex ideas of the perilous realm as opposed to just like good things and evil things. Sarah Lynn and then Jesse? No, Sarah Lynn. Yeah. I don't actually think that like Melian's like the girdle is inherently like it isn't I don't think it's inherently dangerous, but I think it's treacherous. So you get the idea so I got the idea of like you easily um easily lost or easily Confused, and that the potions of Sauron take advantage of that. And because if you, if no one can enter a place, and you have a whole like that, just seems like a good place to set traps and to take advantage of the lost people wandering around it. So I don't think it itself was inherently dangerous, but I do think it was inherently <laughs> I really like treacherous as a descriptor there. I think that's very good. What's your thing? Uh, oh, yeah. The girdle won't knock you down, but it'll make it really easy for you to slip. Mm. It's kind of... Nice. So, yeah. Oh, let's... Come closer. Yeah, Robert, yeah. come closer. <laughs> There's two few closer. of us. Come. There's too few of us. Also, pass around the Timbits, because uh, I told Joseph to get 30 of them. Um, I don't have very many of those. Nope. Thank you. <laughs> Robert, I'm feeling abandoned over here. Can we go closer, closer? Yes, I do. You're allowed to sit there, too. Come sit at the head of the table with me. I mean, I can just keep on moving, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know who was sitting where. Yeah, I, I thought more people were coming, and I felt like yeah. maybe there should be an Astari at the <laughs> head of the table. No, there's a thing. The seat's taken. Oh, sorry, that's mine. <laughs> what is that thing, anyway? Bluetooth headphones. Hey Rob, do you have a uh, favorite part of the reading that you wanted to um, before we move on? I really liked how this version is very colorful mm-hmm. with some of the stuff. Like we're talking about the mixing of uh, around the girdle of Melian and uh, the treachery of Gorlam, I think is very 
very colorful here, description of his wife and the overt, oh, this is Sauron, it's all, all his, uh, his doing. I like all that. All right, let's uh, finally move on to Luthien. There we go. <laughs> you mean it's almost like she's an important part of this chapter or something? <laughs> it's not like it's named after her, right? <laughs> oh, wait. So, yeah, Luthien. <laughs> they meet. Um, <coughs> it's cute. Um, <laughs> A cute meet. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold my final judgment until I've read the rest of this chapter. Okay. But I really feel like Baron and Luthien don't actually know anything about romance or spending a life together. No. Probably accurate. If you think <laughs> about what their upbringings were. Yeah. It's, it's very, very uh, fairy tale-esque. Like the idea of just seeing someone and suddenly being like, we're destined to be together. We forever. shall be married in the morning. Um, and, yeah. Or when they go, go to Thingle. That's, all, that's a very fairy tale setup. Yes. But, but important note, it is not let, like we meet and then let's get married in the morning because there are versions of the story where it totally is. That's um, true. But it's actually meet, spend months hanging out, and then be like, hey, maybe we should get married. <laughs> but, but it starts with, he stalks her through the forest for a year, and she never notices him. <laughs> just, just, okay, we'll get to that. <laughs> <laughs> She's all pure white and virginal, and look at her sparkling feet. <laughs> <laughs> do her feet literally sparkle or metaphorically sparkle? Yes. They, they're, they're described as twinkling. 
I, it almost, I almost get the sense that it's like, you know, because like she, it's often said that she was like the most beautiful of all the children of Iluvatar, and it's, it's almost like a part of all kind of the, of the creations of all the Valar are sort of used as metaphors to apply to her. It's like they're all coming together to form this per, like perfect individual, like you know, the, like you know, she's so beautiful that we'll never see anyone quite like her ever again. Yeah. Also, also, she literally breaks winter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there is that. Also, like, kudos, Tolkien, for this being, like, one of the few times you don't emphasize how white someone's skin is. <laughs> Sarah Lynn. Yeah, I was actually going to say that in her description, you feel, you feel the battle in it, which is the combat mm-hmm. of her own, um, which even ties in with Melian and the, the sense of, like, that she is half of Miranda, and you just even, her beauty isn't described in both the terms. You hear the battle, you feel the sense of goddess-ish in her, for lack of a better word. Yeah, and you see that the most clearly in the, like, in her face was a shining light, right? Cause and the st- inwards of stars, and yeah. Yeah, it goes back to, like, Thingol meeting Melian yeah. and seeing directly the light of Valinor. So. Yeah. Yeah. All good stuff. So, yeah, so then... Uh, <coughs> I also like that mm-hmm. he's not the only one who falls in love at first sight in this situation. Right? Like, he sees her and falls in love, but then as soon as she actually sees him and knows that he exists, she falls in love, too, and he comes upon her. It's great. Yeah. I also like that those two things are intrinsically connected in this sentence. She looked on him, doom fell upon her, and she loved him. <laughs> like, yes. <laughs> She's now ensnared in his, in his destiny. Yeah. Well, and he and hers, right? They're well, ensnared yeah. in one another's destinies. Yeah. Um, it's not as weird as when the child, like, it's a new wheel is... It's like, oh yeah, this guy's kind of cool. I'm gonna marry you. <laughs> <laughs> oh god, no, it's so creepy. It's like she's like, oh this yeah, this guy's better. interesting. Like he's teaching me like all of these different dances, and like human dances are really interesting. And then they go see Thingle, and Thingle's like, what do you want? And he's like, your daughter. <laughs> so it's, it's like, like a, it's, oh. a, it's like an elvish dirty dancing then. Uh, no, it's more like. I'm gonna oof. marry you someday. What? <laughs> like, she doesn't seem to understand what marriage is, which is why it's really creepy. Like, yeah, no, there's none of that here. Like, she has, she no longer reads like she's 12 years old, and that is a very big relief. <laughs> Rob can confirm. Yes, I can. <laughs> like, then she was childlike, and she's even described as being, like, super really tiny. tiny like, yeah. And she, so it's, and like, she's, how old is Baron described in that in that version? Is he like an adult or is he like up somewhere? He's, he's definitely age. an adult, but he's also a gnome, no. i.e. Noldor. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, depending on the version of the version. There's other versions of the version where he's mad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, previous version that, like, we don't know, but there was a yeah. gnome like, previously. And that was back when men were big and Elves like, like that. Tiny little fairy things. <laughs> yeah, but so, like, Sills trying to separate the, the <laughs> fairy from the fae. Anyway, so, uh, you know, <laughs> relative creepiness level. So, yeah, he follows her for a while. Um, but you get this you get this idea that it's not like he desires her. It's not like a lust or anything. It's just kind of like, I'm going to wander around after this light in the forest for, like, a year. Um... <laughs> 
unlike most times, it actually turns out pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, it doesn't end up face down in a bog somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Normally, following lights in three before doesn't go that well. Or you don't get eaten by an anglerfish. There's also, like, it's really interesting because... Really considering it's a forest. <laughs> there's, this, there's this moment of breaking, right? Where Luthien breaks the winter, and she doesn't just break, like, the seasonal winter, like, she also breaks the metaphorical winter that's on Baron because we have, then the spell of silence fell from Baron and he called to her, crying to Nubial, and the woods echoed the name, right? And, like, that's when she turns and sees him. So it's also this sense of, like she couldn't, like, she doesn't notice him until finally the spell is broken and he's able to speak out loud. And then she knows that there's someone there. And, yeah. It's five years without speaking, I think. Yeah, because he doesn't speak the entire time through none yeah. that. Which makes a lot of sense, because it's, like, trauma-induced. He's, he's been wandering through the wilds by himself for years after well, his... There's, there's, yeah, there's the four years after his dad dies that he's up there and then he heads south and there's this year. I don't think very much because it's just the animals he befriends. Yes. Full vegetarian, which was yeah. interesting. Yeah, he kills no living thing except servants of Morgoth. Maybe yeah. he eats orcs. Oh. <laughs> that is an yes. ambiguous point. I don't know where, <laughs> where you get the protein. Nuts. That, that's yeah, a, that's a lot of nuts. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bit nutty. Eggs. Potentially fish. That's true. Mm. I mean, eggs are arguably living. Yeah, I don't think they keep animals. Yeah, I mean, yeah. could be fish. Fish are often treated separately. For uh, for cats. <laughs> Nor slew any living thing that was not in the service of Morgoth, and as we know, all cats are in the service of Morgoth. So, all right, who's eating cats? Guys? Okay. <laughs> Moving a lot on. of snake. <laughs> um, I don't think snakes are in the service. Actually, oh, there's this one version of the Fall of Condolin, but that's like early drafts. Okay. <laughs> Those are like metal and fire snakes. Those are different. Those aren't normal no, snakes. No, 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 no. There's, there's also this one weird bit about all the snakes and the rocks. It's like, yeah, they were yeah. some sort of twisting thing. Okay, yeah. anyway. Um, <laughs> anyway, Baron all right. talk because he's not the kind to have the nice montage of Baron walking through the woods, killing monsters and talking stuff to himself. Yeah. There are two kinds of heroes. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, this part is kind of important, right? Then the spell of silence fell from Baron, and he called to her, crying to Nubial, and the woods echoed the name. Then she halted in wonder and fled no more, and Baron came to her. But as she looked on him, doom fell upon her, and she loved him, yet she slipped from his arms and vanished from his sight even as the day was breaking. Then Baron lay upon the ground in a swoon, as one slain at once by bliss and grief. And he fell into a sleep, as it were, into an abyss of shadow, and waking he was cold as stone, and his heart barren and forsaken. And wandering in mind, he groped as one that is stricken with sudden blindness, and seeks with hands to grasp the vanished light. Thus he began the payment of anguish for the fate that was laid on him, and in his fate Luthien was caught, and being immortal she shared in his mortality, and being free received his chain, and her anguish was greater than any other of the Eldaliae has known. Um, beyond his hope, she returned to him where he sat in darkness, and long ago in the hidden kingdom she laid her hand in his. Thereafter, often she came to him, and they went in secret through the woods together from spring to summer, and no others of the children of Iluvatar have had joy so great, though the time is brief. Right. I think it's really cool how not only was her anguish greater, but her joy was also greater. So she experienced, like, 
almost like more of an epic life, like a heightened life, which had all of the extreme highs and lows, which was cool. Yeah. yeah. Also, this is not very helpful, but I think this would make a great thing to adapt into a graphic novel because the imagery is amazing, oh, yeah. and you can just like picture like the panels and how like like kind of a watercolor look. Work, it would work well for like a montage sequence of just their spending time with each other. And the word choice is so deliberate too. Like he chooses to say, "Long ago in the hidden kingdom, she laid her hand in his." Like it's that. It's again that ordering of things in the sentence. And as well, like he's choosing to say the hidden kingdom rather than Doriath or the forest of Neldoreth. He's not throwing any of his made-up names into that sentence. And I think that is, there's a very good reason for that. Right? It has this weird universality. Um, as well as, like, the idea of the hidden kingdom, right? Like, this sanctuary. That sounds like another one of those lines that you pulled from something a lot earlier that was just so perfect. Yeah, yeah. it definitely Obviously. does. Yeah, it just lends to the whole idea of, like, just him treating this as kind of actual history. Like, these are stories that happened long, long ago. Yeah. Why does Tolkien have so many, like, beautiful, like, hand-holding images? Like... Do you remember because the... Because he was a good Catholic boy, and that's about as much as you get for a while. <laughs> okay. <laughs> wow. <laughs> just went there. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, maybe he's really into holding hands. Maybe it's just like, uh, you know, again, related to him and his wife, maybe they would just sort of spend evening scene. Maybe holding hands is a metaphor for something else. And then from like a, a literary perspective, like your two, your two most symbolic kind of windows into seeing what a person is like is their eyes and their hands, because you can see you can see like into a person through their eyes because it's very hard to lie with your eyes, but at the same time like the hands are significant because you can tell a whole lot about a person just by their hands. Like when you shake a person's hands for the first time, it's like. I have a vague idea what you do for a living. What kind of person you are. I mean, in a lot of ways, I mean, holding hands is a really intimate moment. Like, more intimate than a lot of other things in some ways. As somebody who's not a good Catholic player. <laughs> 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 like, there's, so, there's just something about holding hands that's, that's another deeper layer of intimacy than any sort of, you know, carnal urge that, that Baron might be feeling. You know, it's a lot pure too. Yeah, it's something that can be both platonic and romantic, and like it can be, a, it's just kind of like a gesture of affection and connection with another person that doesn't necessarily have qualifiers on it. Which I think is cool. Sarah Lynn, how do you end up? <laughs> I like, way back a bit before, I like that in the midst of the woods, like, when she slips away and you get the sense of anguish and like glee, you also get like the line when the day was waking. And like that in the midst of like when Luthien's being falls upon her and she loves him. And even in spite of that, you like that wording in there, I like that. And then I guess apparently we're talking about hand holding now. <laughs> and I it I like the sense the wording in that it brings a sense of like connection between mm-hmm. the two and like links you can trust. Um, side note, unrelated to all of this, uh, Rick says he really misses not being here right now, and does he, did he mention that he thinks we're all really amazing people? Aww. Aww. Mm. 
<laughs> Tell him that we all miss him. Are we going to do the thing where we're going to leave his chair unoccupied? Has like a little no. wave on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was bad. <laughs> it's a little bit fun. Tell. We're trying to not be. It's kind of our doing that. Well, it's happening. We're, right. we're doing it. It's happening right now. We're so. trying not to be a cult. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It is too late. We're definitely a cult. We can still just Skype him in and put him on that chair. That's always an option. I mean, clearly he's awake, so... We're, we're totally going to just get, like, a custom cardboard cutout and put it in the chair. Oh, man. I'm, I'm going to just jump in on this and say that I'm reading this, she laid her hand in his, as symbolic of an engagement. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's actually a really good point, yeah. This is... Yeah, that's probably what it is, but... <laughs> <laughs> but you just had to go by this. I'm just going to sit here quietly. Well, then, like, it, it could also be kind of, you know, like, because this whole, this whole tale is based on, you know, how he met his wife, so it could be, you know, like, the two of them would spend evenings together in the forest, kind of walking and holding hands. Yes. I mean the literal sense, not where you're going. <laughs> That's what I meant, too. What are you thinking, Hey, you're the one who opened this can of worms. Say, for the for the sake of we we're recording this, let's move on. <laughs> let's move on. Yeah. So. <laughs> oh, Justin's gonna Justin or Robert is gonna have to go over this and do some editing. Oh no, don't let Robert well, go over it. Well, we, we, <laughs> we haven't said anything edit worthy so far, so let's yeah. just move on. There's so much we can take care of in post production. <laughs> so the next thing is um okay yeah um. The weird Dyron thing happens, and then they go see Thingle. Okay, but yeah, I think it's worth noting in that very brief thing about Dyron. Mm-hmm. Um, not about Dyron, but Dyron goes to Thingle. Mm-hmm. And this is one of those situations in which you can tell that Thingle's not doing his usual thing, where he like thinks about it and then makes purchase decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> because Dyron goes to Thingle. Thingle has not met them and has the word of a total of one person that anything is happening, and he is filled with anger. Yeah, because like zero I I can understand wanting being like protective of your daughter and not wanting her to just marry this like you know to to you like a ruffian come from like the wandering through the woods. But at the same time, yeah, it's just like he doesn't seem as like logical and understanding as he has been before. Also, like, again, in the tale of Tenuvial, this makes a heck of a lot of sense because Luthien reads like she's 12 years old, shows up, and is like, because, like, Baron basically decides that he's, like, gonna go, like, march off to Thingle or whatever, and then Tenuvial is like, hey, here's this guy, he's my friend, he's been teaching me dances, and then Thingle is like, what do you want? And then he's like, your daughter. And I'm like, you know what? This is justified. Like, if my 12-year-old daughter met a really sketchy adult man in the woods, like, no. Like, very... But anyway, in this case... If I recall correctly, in that version, Darren is her brother, not... Yeah, he is. ...in love with her. That therefore has a little bit more... That would be greater justification for going to think of more. It's also, like, less creepy. He's, like, kind of, like... Yeah. Protect. <laughs> but here, Luthien is an adult. Like you said, Thingle hasn't even asked her about anything. He's just heard from this one dude. This one um, dude who is in love with her and would be annoyed by literally anyone else who talked to her, probably. That's actually yes. probably Although Mistle is an important figure in a court. 
Yeah. So he does. He does have some reliability in that. But at the same time, Dairon's perspective is severely skewed by his personal feelings. So mm-hmm. I could just easily picture him giving the worst possible description of Baron possible. You know? Entirely possible. But we, we don't know whether Thingol knows that Darren's in love with her either. Mm. But yeah. There's also the fact that this guy, this random somebody, got through the girdle of Melian. That's and true. That is slightly and more. He's like, hey, yes. no one should be able to do this. What the What's crap? What kind of power? Oh no, oh no, he can't be an orb. Oh no. Um, <laughs> Which does kind of make sense. I'd like to point out that no one brings it up again. I'd also like to point out that Melian sassed this way earlier when Jimbo was like, and no men, like not even from the house of Baor, will enter my realm. And Melian's like, yeah, but one's going to. And he'll be from the house of Baor. <laughs> yeah. So, like, it's, it's probably, like, as soon as, he, as soon as someone said that he's Baron, son of Baron here, Thingol's sitting there like, ah. Fuck. <laughs> 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 and then proceeds to make ill-advised decisions and statements again, regardless of the fact that he's literally just been proven wrong. I like the fact, though, that, like, Thingol sends people to, like, get Baron and then bring him, but, like, Luthien intervenes and kind of gets them to let go of him so that she can lead him yes. in, like, as a guest, right? And, I just, like, I like that, again. Both in terms of Baron seeming like less of an asshole and Luthien having more agency. Bringing so. your engaged to meet your dad for the first time. Yeah. But knowing that normal people shouldn't be able to go through the girdle of Melian makes more sense why Thingol thinks that Baron's coming from Morgoth. It does, but, like, there's still, like, then the king was filled with anger for he loved Luthien above all things, right? So there's that sense of, like, his priority isn't how did this guy get through the girdle, it's, but he talked to Luthien. <laughs> but but there's another layer to that, though, because, like, as we've said, there's, the foreshadowing was there, and then we get into the whole issue of doom. So it could, in part, be he's now blaming Baron because it's like, okay, I knew there was, like, this instance of doom that was going to end up coming to my doorstep, and now you've just brought my daughter into it, and I'd like nothing more than to end this right now and just kill you. So, yeah, so this all makes sense for, like, the lead-up. Um, but now I think we should get into, like, the actual conversation and how that progresses. Do you guys want to sure. start us off? Go first. Um... I think it was kind of a jerk. <laughs> I think this is the version of him that I, I dislike the most. Because um, in other versions where he's more justified in what he says, he's still not this much of a jerk. It kind of feels like it, it comes out of nowhere, mostly out of a place of prejudice. Because I think Melian explains to him where this guy comes from and how he got to, like, yep, yeah, this is this is the thing that I told you about, you know. Yeah, I can literally see Dyer bringing this news. And Melian is there. And Thingol's just like losing it. Melian's like. She's just giving him like that look from beside him. He's like, nope. Nope. <laughs> it's prejudice, but it's also possessiveness. Like, Luthien is very much an, almost an object to Thingol in some ways. Like, his like, daughter, therefore, um, he's in charge of her decisions, and like, she can't make her own decisions. And uh, as I'm sure you've talked about already in this Lemurian, possessiveness um, of, of over things often leads to bad outcomes. And possessive love specifically. Yes. This isn't yeah. like the first time Tolkien's had points against that. Yeah. 
I just, yeah, no, I, 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 just I agree that like he's not all the way gone. But it's like he, it's that he it's kind of like he can put that qualification in because he doesn't think it's ever going to get to that point. So he doesn't think that Luthien cares about it actually matters. I, I just Luthien already will. Yeah. Right. And as someone like getting the silver lane is supposed to be like an unachievable task. Like he thinks it's an easy way out. Yeah. I love Baron's response of like, oh, you value you value your daughter so little, you would sell her for a jewel. It's like he he doesn't really understand the severity of the task before him. Oh, I think he does. He sets Luthien above Silmarils. That's true. Okay, yeah, I get that. She's like, really? That's that's it. <laughs> I think that's what it would be. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. But I just love the sarcasm of that line. Someone had to this is just such a shotgun on the table moment. It really is. I have a small correction to make. Mm-hmm. We have the foreshadowing, but Tingle doesn't. Okay. Melian says, "Now the world to Galadriel." Great tidings, and that one of men, even of Mayor's house, shall indeed come, and the girdle of Melian shall not restrain him, for doom greater than my power shall send him. She doesn't say it to Thingol. Oh. Interesting. Hmm. If she did, she would have heard about it if it was important. Yeah. 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 And also the fact that it specifies that she says it to Galadriel kind of implies that she's not saying it to Thingol in like a weird way. Right? Melian said nothing to him at that time, but afterwards she said to Galadriel, now the world runs on, blah, blah, blah. Hmm. It's okay. almost explicit that she never told him. Yeah. I wonder if they have problems in their marriage. <laughs> it's not the best levels of communication yes. the two have. They don't very well at all. No, no. Well, anyway. Um. <laughs> they leave their work at work. I was just going to say. <laughs> I wonder how much they learned from Yvonne and Alec. Oh, God. <laughs> so there are, there are other parts. Oh, my God. Can you imagine, like, a Thingle and Melian sass fight? Okay. <laughs> Just like, yeah, like a bitter, like, sort of divorce period between the two. I don't no, even I don't picture so. that. I just picture Thingle running hot, and then there's just Melian, just like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah you, yes, keep, dear. you keep thinking that. Yeah, yes, but. dear. All right. <laughs> um, I am the king here. <laughs> yeah, okay, so we have lots of cool stuff in this passage, like the uh, exact words quandary, right? Um, <laughs> and... Yeah, also, um, Baron, like, it's, 
obviously to Thingol, he's being like a bold ass, but to Baron, he's not. He's not going to say any of this until he looks at Melian, and then all of a sudden the words just sort of appear to him, which is another kind of little like Valar nod thing. Your fate is bigger than you. Um, and then we have Thingol being really good at insults. Like, yep. um, like, death you should find suddenly had I not sworn an oath in haste of which I repent, base-born mortal, who in the realm of Morgoth has learnt to creep in secret as his spies and thralls. Which is really interesting because it kind of shows that Thingol probably doesn't leave Doriath very often, and he doesn't let men in Doriath, so it's kind of like he clearly has this idea that men are a lot likelier to become like easily corrupted by Morgoth, and he doesn't really like know them very He's well. <laughs> well, no, but I mean, like, if you... The third and a half of the men you meet have been corrupted by Morgoth. Yeah, but, like, if you compared this to, like, were this happening in, like, Fingon and Fingolfin's, like, Dor Lomen, like, their immediate house of most trusted people has Hador in it. Yeah. And, like, his family. So, it would... I feel like it would be different if, like... It were happening to someone who actually had experience with men. Maybe, or even but there, like, but there's um, that bit earlier where they're talking about the captives that Morgoth took, and yeah. it's like people didn't trust them. Yeah. And there is a price to that because then you look at those other kingdoms and all that's befallen them, and then here's Doriath that still, you know, still exists. Right I mean, there. But, yeah, which makes sense from Thingol's perspective, but at the same time, from, like, a macro Silmarillion perspective, like, Thingol himself and his inability to adapt and his anger is the single biggest threat to his own kingdom, right? Yeah, um, yeah but we'll see other instances of that later. Yeah. Um, or also, like, in, uh, in Gondolin, right? Yeah. Um, what's his face? Thank you. That's why I said that. Tergon <laughs> is fine with letting his daughter marry a human. Mm. So it's kind of. Kind of had, I think he had instructions from Oro that this human was special. It's possible. Like, like he, <laughs> I don't think he knew it was a human, but like he knew that whoever showed up, showed up with his armor was going to be special and sent by the Valar themselves. And so he, that, that might have helped. And he previously <laughs> met said human's father? Yeah. Yeah, yeah so, Tour had a lot of like important people vouching for him in this case where. But yeah, so like, I just, I don't know, I feel like meeting some men would probably help you be less prejudiced about it, that's all. Probably. <laughs> yeah, probably. Well, I mean, Especially if they're men who don't come in looking like they've spent five years wandering in the wild without a comb or a toothbrush and want to marry your daughter. Yes! <laughs> okay, presumably he's cleaned up a little in the months he spent wandering with Luthien. <laughs> but like, also, his last interaction with humans has been these people showing up on land he claimed in his own, saying, this is ours. <laughs> uh, oh yeah, the forest of breath. Yeah, oh right, right, right. Saying this is ours now. Um, okay, thanks. <laughs> and not to mention, Thingle would have a bit of a different perspective, just in the manner in which he became Thingle when he met Melian and all that in the beginning. So he may not necessarily look at things quite the same way as anyone else. I mean, like, part of the greatest irony of that is that Thingle should, of all people, should understand where Baron's coming from. Yep. He I would understand, like, he totally knew it. Yeah. <laughs> like, he should understand, and even, like, the fact that they met exactly the same way, as randomly, with no background, too, so. enchantment language. 
Yeah, Dad and like Fingal sees the light of Valinor in Melian's face, which is what Baron sees in Luthien. So it's like, you know, of anyone who would be able to empathize. <laughs> yeah, it's also like there's, I have had some bad interactions with like some men, and Fingal um, doesn't even, like, I think it's not even that Fingal won't treat with men like as equals. Fingal doesn't even take mortal men into his service. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, he wouldn't even be around them. Mm-hmm. They are just not worthy. <laughs> um, and the other thing is that, like, um, later on, to kind of point this one out, just because weird things that Fingal does um, explicitly says that a Silmaril would be the price for, like, even courting his daughter. And then says, I sell not to elder men those whom I love and treasure and cherish above all You just like, set a price. Literally exactly did just that. Before <laughs> that, that's you not, would have been treating people with agency, and now you are literally that's selling. Not, that's not selling, though. That's just saying that this, this gives you access. Yeah. Right? Like, that's, this is that's still a paywall. It's still, <laughs> it's still a paywall, but like he's not like saying, I'll give you uh, my daughter for a Silmarill. It's, if you bring me a Silmarill, you're allowed to, you know, Ask her if she'd like to marry you. But he already knows the answer to that question. But I guess getting a Silmaril is like you can talk to someone if you bring essentially It's a fetch question. It's less about the Silmaril itself, it's the getting of it. Okay, but if we're talking about whether Baron, this is another thing in which if Single ever paid any attention to anything that was going on outside his realm, he would know. Because if he'd been paying attention to what was happening where Baron had been, he would know that as previously stated, all the evil creatures are whispering his name in terror. True. Um, and that might have given him a bit of a hint this might be someone who would be trustworthy. This but is, if he listened yeah. to that, then he would also possibly think Baron would, would be a fit, and he's not going to skip. Like, he doesn't do that. So he doesn't <laughs> listen to other people in terms of like Baron. Yeah. I think that's, like, very much meant to be, like, a, you know, a critique of Fingal's, like, insularness and all yeah. of that, so. Yeah. Also, okay, other things that are great, like, unhappy men, children of little lords and brief kings, shall such as these lay hands on you and yet live. That's so vicious! Like, <laughs> like, so vicious. The, the level of little sass in that is so acidic. <laughs> it's almost aspirational. <laughs> <laughs> like... I feel like this is where Peter Jackson and them got the writing for like Thranduil. Yeah. <laughs> Basically. Yeah. Entirely possible. I'm like like that line just makes me want to see this on the big screen and just like Just to see Fingal say that. Right. Like Fingal would outsass Thranduil in the Hobbit. Like it would be crazy. Um But yeah. I don't know, like, that that attitude, right, also just ties into my whole, like, um, like, it is so easy for prejudiced elves to look at humans and be like, they don't matter because they die so quickly. Yeah. So, like, it's nice when they don't do that. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, it's like, you know, as compared to, say, you know, even though we don't, don't get much in the books, like in the, in the Lord of the Rings movies, you know, like Elrond's entire concern is 
he is a man who will die, and my concern is that you will become heartbroken. You know, it's like a, a you know, not as vicious a response. It's just you know, he's more concerned about her. He's concerned about her own well-being. Yeah, it's yeah, like if you do this, you will you will suffer, and I don't want that for you because I love you. It's it's a far more kind of benevolent response than what Thingo's doing here. Yeah, see, where I I read them in the same mentality, it's just. You know, there's Elrond and then there's Thingol because I picture the train of thought being very similar to Elrond's in that regard. Like, mm-hmm. so I, like I said earlier, Thingol's like, okay, you're bringing my daughter into this, and this is only going to be like a bad thing. Mm-hmm. So do this impossible thing to show that you mean it, and then I'll think about it. <laughs> yeah. So then, well, yeah, the last thing in this chapter is Melian. Being like, you done goofed. <laughs> um, you screwed either yourself or Baron. Yes. Or not Baron, sorry, yourself or your daughter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Bye, Sarah. Bye. See ya. Although, in a roundabout way, it's kind of all three. He screwed everyone. But, like, she tries to tell him that before, too. She's like, be careful. Right, yeah. Because she goes, for not by you shall Baron be slain, and for all he does escape me, and in the end, yet it is well with yours. Take heed. Before this happens, so she does warn him ahead of time. Yeah. She is like, don't make stupid, angry impulse decisions. And he and specifically does says, anyway. I feel like if someone told me my fate was wound with someone, especially someone I think is beneath me, yeah. I'd be a little cautious about what is about to transpire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Especially just like considering what he's already done, and that's be the only person in history to circumvent the girdle of millions so yeah, he can do things that or at least like his doom permits him to do things that are considered impossible although that does explicitly state that Thingol's first reaction is going to just be to execute him on the spot mm-hmm. well I mean and like another important point is that like if Melian is not concerned about this guy who's gotten past her girdle <laughs> then Thingol doesn't really have a right to be <laughs> yes <laughs> I wonder at what point Melian stops trying to give him advice and warn, warn him about things and <laughs> explaining why he was wrong after he did it. <laughs> oh boy. That, that, that is a thing, actually, just because, like we were saying earlier, like she didn't warn him that someone, or we were discussing her not warning him someone was going to do this. Yeah, so it's it like, seems like she knows a lot of things that she just doesn't bother. She's like, oh, he's going to do what he does anyway, and I'll, I'll tell him what happened after. <laughs> You won't listen, but I'll say I told you so. <laughs> exactly. I, I feel like she maybe takes the whole Maiar non-interference thing a little bit too far. Like, she could give more advice than she does. She Maybe she's trying to not interfere with the whole free will thing, but... Okay. I think you kind of have the idea that she sees what's going to happen. So, it's more like... It's almost like she can see too many but it, like when she sees it it's almost like it's going to happen anyway because like she has the foresight of all of this but that already kind of implies that fate is already in play in all of this and you get that idea with like with that a lot of that like when fate's already in it it's just the more advice you can kind of give but yeah. not specifically you can just feel it and you get kind of similar wording with Malian too
Yeah. I would agree with that. Because I also get the impression that Malian is like, there are so many major fates going on right now that I don't know what to do. <laughs> She did spend a bunch of time in the forest to Valorian, who works with visions and dreams. Well, she makes S and Uso's S and Fanny. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah, Fanny, we know very little about. Este is the wife of Valorian, so that's where she spends a lot of her time. Yeah. <coughs> yeah, so I feel like foretelling is sort of a natural forte. Yeah. Well I think we're I think we're done. Yeah. I think that's book study. <laughs> yeah, we, we all kind of fizzled a little bit. Mm. I still haven't done. But we covered everything. Thanks guys. I thought that was a really good discussion.